from the New York Stock Exchange. I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Jobstastic U.S. futures soar pre-market as October hiring data beats. Five Jeepers, China switching on the world's largest 5G network and some pretty cool innovation. We speak to the firm keeping lithium batteries cool in space and beyond. It's Friday. Let's make a move. Once again, to first move, a very happy Friday to you all and a particularly happy Friday to U.S. workers. Let me explain why, because the October non-farm payroll report showing stronger than expected jobs growth of 128,000 jobs added, in fact, versus an expected rise of around 89,000 jobs. This despite the drag of the just concluded GM strike, which also we also saw uh, big upward revisions to August and September. Number two, we did see the unemployment rate tick up a little bit and wage growth was perhaps a little more modest than expected, but pretty strong jobs number. I have to say all the details and more analysis coming right up. The question for now, though, is what do investors think of it? Well, I can tell you they like it right now. Futures are higher pre-market for the final session of the week. It's not the only good news that we're focusing on, though. Chinese data, I think, also helping sentiment here, providing some encouraging factory data. The private Cation factory survey showing activity at a 32-month high, firmly in expansion mode. Now, that's a marked contrast to the official Chinese PMI survey data yesterday. Now, that tends to cover larger firms. It's geographically different, too, and that showed continued weakness. Interesting one. Stand by for more factory data here in the United States, too, at 10 a.m. Eastern. Yesterday's session, though, ending in the red, not helped. And this is also important by a Midwest manufacturing survey that showed a big drop in new orders. As we keep reiterating, here on first move manufacturing making up just 11 percent of the u.s economy it's the lowest proportion of the u.s economy since the 1940s in fact the key is not taking your eye off the u.s consumer and for today it's good news let's get to the drivers because we're going to talk through those job statistics Pez sebastian joins us on this great jobs number for october better jobs numbers for the prior two months claire some might even call it trump-tastic Right, and perhaps uh, Fed Chair Jerome Powell knew something we didn't when he said the economy is on a strong footing, hiring is strong, and now might be the time uh, to stop cutting rates for the moment. Yesterday, this was extremely strong. Around 85,000 was what was expected. 128,000 was what came in. That indicates that the drag from the GM strike wasn't quite as bad as people were expecting. The uh, cuts to uh, motor vehicle and parts jobs, that declined 42,000. Overall manufacturing was down 36,000. That, of course, though, uh, in, in large part, a temporary factor because, of course, the GM strike has ended. There was also another temporary drag from uh, temporary workers employed to do the U.S. Census. Uh, but that, of course, will be over by the next month as well. So overall, very, very strong. One of the strongest areas was food services and drinking places. That was up 48,000. We talk about the strength of the U.S. consumer. Clearly, people are still out eating and drinking. But one slightly negative note, if you look now over the course of the year, the average uh, for monthly gains in jobs is 167,000. That significantly lower than what we saw last year, Julia, at uh, 223,000 in 2018. So we are still seeing a deceleration when it comes to hiring, but overall not quite as bad as some had feared. 
I know, I was just digging into the numbers here before the show. The pool of available labour falling to its lowest level since December of 2000. At some point, when you've got so many jobs out there, and admittedly people working a number of jobs, it gets harder and harder and harder to find workers. What you would expect then is they have to pay a bit more. But I don't know, I'm looking at this wage data and that's not so sparkly. No, it's baffling, Julia, because literally every business that I speak to nowadays, for, for a variety of different reasons, not even just this, they say that one of their biggest challenges is finding the right skilled workers. The tight labor market is a real challenge for businesses, but still wage growth was fairly flat at 3% year on year, ticked up 6 cents month on month, which was slightly faster uh, than we saw the last month. But this has still not really kept pace with the tightness of the labor market. So that is a real conundrum going forward. But, but look, overall, I think... This is a sign of strength there. Wage growth at 3% is still probably above inflation. So it's so still a lot of positive signs here. I have to say, though, given that what we've talked about over the past few weeks, recession concerns, concerns the importance of the reliance on the U.S. consumer, and to your point about Jay Powell and what the Federal Reserve is seeing here, I started by saying it was Trump-tastic, and we do have a tweet from the president. Wow, a blowout jobs number just out, adjusted for revisions and the GM strike, 303,000. This is far greater than expectations. USA rocks. Hard to take it away here. The economy remains on an aggregate basis, pretty strong here, Claire. Pretty strong. I think another key number, Julia, that we're going to get today is the ISM right. manufacturing data that's out at 10 o'clock. There continues to be a disconnect between business confidence and spending in the manufacturing sector, which has showed consistent weakness over the past few months off the back, uh, ironically, of the president's own policy at his trade dispute with China and the strength of the U.S. consumers. So far, that disconnect continues. It will be interesting to see if we see another decline in manufacturing activity. And I think many economists are wondering how long that divergence can continue? How long can businesses see declining spending until it spills over into hiring and then by extension into the consumer? But, but, but overall, this economy seems to be ticking along nicely and that very much reinforces what the, the Fed chair said this week. Yes, right to pause for now. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. Next driver, China turbocharging its bid to become a tech superpower with the launch of the world's largest 5G network. David Culver is in Beijing for us and tracking this story. We've seen the United States and South Korea flirting with this, but this is well and truly China out in front. Talk us through what was uh, switched on today, David. To your point, too, Julia, you've got the U.S. doing it in some parts, South Korea, Australia. But this here in China, it is all about scale. And you know how things are done here in China. It is done on a massive scale. They estimate state media here that they have some 850 million people who surf the Internet using their mobile smartphones. So when they're rolling out this now 5G, this fifth generation, which they say could be up to 100 times faster than the current 4G, they're going to be giving access to a lot of folks here, millions of people. Let me give you some of the ideas as far as the scales of what cities we're talking about. They say some 50 cities are going to be rolling out here in Beijing. You've got some 21 million people. Shanghai, some 24 million. Guangzhou, you've got 12 and a half million. And then Shenzhen, you've got 11 million. All of those more than what we see in New York 
and London. So that tells you just how many millions of people will eventually have access to this. So speed is one thing. Connectivity as far as um, a lower latency, if you will, so the delay from transmitting from one phone to another. And, and that's going to all play into, for example, uh, smart cars and, and self-driving cars, something that they're testing here in China so that these cars can actually have a more instantaneous reaction with one another. And uh, that would enhance technology. They're also talking about these smart band-aids, things that could uh, perhaps detect your healing and track them as you uh, go through that healing progress. Smartphone uh, type of uh, toothbrushes that can tell you if you're sick. I mean, all sorts of things. So the, the reality is though, those are going to take a couple of years. I know it's all over the place, but but it's going to take yeah, a few years. So the folks here are, are not going to see that right away because uh, it takes the applications a while to come up to speed with what the full advantages are of this 5G network. Yeah, but it's such a huge accelerant to your point here. I mean, I was looking at some of the stats. Analysts at Jefferies predicting China will have 110 million 5G users. We're talking 7% of the population by 2020. I mean, that is astronomical in terms of progression and growth here, David. But talk to me about companies. We talk a lot about Huawei, but it's not just about Huawei, as pivotal as they are. I noticed other names, Nokia, Ericsson, that are being used by China here too. Fascinating. Absolutely. And, and to your point here, okay, so having the 5G network is one thing, but you need the product that it can actually access that network. And that's where the phones themselves come into play. So Huawei is a huge one. And, and that is, to put it in perspective, the majority of folks who have smartphones here rely on Huawei. Some 42% of people, compared with Apple products, for example, the iPhone, where it's like 5% here. So Huawei is a massive one. Huawei obviously has been something you and I have been talking about a, a great deal because that's the company that has been really targeted uh, by U.S. politicians and the Trump administration citing national security concerns, worried that this 5G network, they're even, you know, according to state media here, politicizing it, fearing that it could be a national security issue and, and risk spying. So all of this has, has kind of tied in together with the U.S.-China trade war as well. But Huawei has rolled out, as of today, a new smartphone that will be equipped to run this 5G network, and several other companies are going to be relying on that too. Now, China's state media points out that this will benefit U.S. companies. They point out uh, Qualcomm, for example, and Intel. Some of the companies that make chips for other smartphones here will be seeing a boost economically because of this 5G network. That's such a great point, David, but I was just looking down the list as well. ZTE, Ericsson, Nokia, Huawei, no U.S. companies involved in the kind of infrastructure that we're talking about. Keeping the chip makers aside here, there's a reason why the U.S. is upset here, I think. David, great to have you with us. Thank you so much, and a happy Friday evening. All right, let's move on to our next driver. Enter Apple. Tune in for a thrilling new episode of The Streaming Wars. The tech giant joining the fray, a little bit late to the fray, with the launch of Apple TV+. Hannes Gold joins us on this story. Late to the party, have to say. Cute price, whopping ecosystem here. Short on content, perhaps, Hannes. What do we think here? Yeah. 
late to the party, but something that analysts are paying close attention to. So this new Apple TV Plus streaming service launches today in more than 100 countries. It's available for $499 a month. But if you buy a new iPhone or a new Apple product, you will get it free for one year. Now, as you noted, this uh, this new service is short, let's say, on content. It's not like Netflix where you can seemingly scroll forever through all these different types of options. There's only going to be around nine original shows. But where they might lack on a content library, Apple is making up for it with these huge names that are behind these shows. Of course, we've all seen those big advertisements for the morning show starring Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon, and Steve Carell. But other names like Oprah Winfrey and Steven Spielberg are also backing some of these nine original shows. Now, why is Apple doing this now? Well, it's because of slumping iPhone sales and Apple needing to really pivot towards these more services. They're trying to attract people through this TV streaming service. Now, they don't necessarily need to get tons and tons of people on board like Netflix does, but this is a pivotal moment for Apple. It's a pivotal moment for Tim Cook. If you could, I don't know, look at the Steve Jobs era and think about the iPhone as a pivotal moment for him. This could be the pivotal moment, the change moment for Apple right now under Tim Cook. And the one question that I wonder, Julia, is how long this price will stay at $4.99 a month? Because right now it's, I think, the cheapest option of all the streaming services out there. I'm not sure how long it will stay at $4.99. Tim Cook was asked uh, just the other week by reporters whether that price will change and when it will change. And he didn't indicate for sure that it's going to stay at $4.99. said it's something they will continue to look at. Content. They've got to come up with the content good, surely, because even if it's $4.99 and relatively cheap compared to some of the other guys, when you're looking at the likes of Amazon, of Netflix, even if they're a little bit more expensive, the sheer library content that they've got is, is whopping. Do you agree? Yeah, but what Apple is banking on are these names. They're banking that people are going to yeah. look at the price, say, okay, $4.99, that's how much you might pay to rent a movie on some other services. I'll pay $4.99 to get these nine shows, especially if I love Oprah. And also think other shows like Sesame Street are going to be on there as well. If And some these shows, there's a lot of money around it. Apple is reportedly spending something like $6 billion on some of these shows. They're spending as much money as other shows like The Walking Dead have spent. So these are really high production value, huge, huge names, huge stars, and that's what Apple is banking on right now. Deep pockets is definitely one thing Apple has. Hadas, great to have you with us. Hadas Gold there on that story. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. Plenty more to come. Stay with us. First move live from the New York Stock Exchange. We are looking at a stronger open for the final session of this week. As anticipated, a stronger U.S. non-farm payroll report helping sentiment here. 128,000 jobs created last month, well above expectations. Higher revisions for the prior two months, too. This despite the effects of the 40-day GM strike. We did see the unemployment rate ticking a touch higher here, though, too. Keep an eye because I spy some M&A activity. Fitbit. Remember we were talking about this earlier this week. Google now confirming that it's buying the fitness tracker company for $2.1 billion. Fitbit shares adding a further 16 percentage points pre-market this morning. Google getting in on the wearables business. Now, 
Let's move on and talk about energy too, because this is another sector to keep in focus. It's a sector that's lagged the broader market. And an ETF that tracks energy shares finished modestly lower in October. It's down 11%, in fact, over the past six months. To give you a comparison, the S&P 500 has risen 4% over that time. Now, key earnings in the sector today, big oil reporting big drops in earnings, a revenue miss for both Exxon and Chevron. Exxon did beat expectations on earnings boosted by a big surge in shale production and yet profits have halved. Let's talk this through. Rob Thummel is Managing Director at Tortoise Capital Investors and he joins us now. Rob, great to have you with us as always. As I pointed out there, Energy's had a tough time this year. It's underperformed the broader sector for Chevron and Exxon. They've both been in the bottom half of the S&P 500. What do you make of these earnings and are we starting to see value perhaps in these stock prices? Yeah, well, yeah, Tortoise, we do think the energy sector is undervalued. Julia, if you look at just the sector broadly, it trades at half the enterprise value to EBITDA multiple relative to the S&P 500 stocks. The dividend yield actually is, is what we think is most compelling, and the dividend yield on the energy sector uh, is, is probably one and a half times the S&P 500. And in this environment of a low 10-year treasury uh, and investors just starving for dividend yields, uh, you know, the energy sector is a good place to come to, to, to get some dividend yield. Uh, Exxon and Chevron are are, are two, two companies also that offer significant dividend yields, 4 or 5% dividend yields. They've reported results today, kind of a mixed bag um, f f from both of those. What are investors looking at here, Rob, when they're watching these big oil names? Because we have seen it lag, the, the shifts that we've seen in oil prices overall, the energy sector itself. So there's fears about oil demand going forward, the broader slowdown, China trade. What specifically are investors looking for? Does it just come down to capital discipline here? Yeah, that's a, good, that's a good question, Julia. So big picture right now, the biggest driver right now is the U.S.-China trade war because investors just globally are concerned about global energy demand. Now, what investors forget about is 35 out of the last 36 years, global energy demand has increased, and we expect global energy demand to continue to increase. Sources of supply will probably change over time, but global energy demand is go going to increase. So at this point, from, a, from an energy perspective, um, specific to some oil producers, what investors are, are trying to, to to uh, sort out is, are these good businesses? And how do they prove that they're good businesses? Well, they generate a lot of free cash flow. And we think that over the next several years, you're going to see a mountain of cash flow being built up by the energy sector. Um, that proves that these are really good businesses. Investors will be rewarded by that, by that cash flow th through the form of higher dividends or, in addition to that, share buybacks. And so we think those two factors um, make this sector very compelling to get into right now. And like I said, you get a really good dividend yield right now um, in investing in the sector. It's relatively, compared to the uh, stock market here overall, the S&P 500 and bonds right now, super juicy, the kind of levels of, of dividends that we're talking about. Just talk to me about OPEC in December. What are you expecting from them? Because is that going to give further support to oil prices and therefore perhaps the energy names here too? Yeah, yeah, and and, and and Julie, that's that's a very good point. That's the next catalyst, I guess, for the energy sector. December fifth, there's the the annual uh, or the semi-annual OPEC meeting, a uh, regularly scheduled meeting. Uh, the question will be, what will OPEC do? Will they cut production? Will they increase production? Um, the expectation is right now that they they 
it's, it's quite possible that they'll actually lower their production again. They'll cut production at, at uh, across the OPEC again, once again. The reason why is because OPEC still wants to see oil prices higher. They don't want to see oil inventories increasing. Um, and so as a result of that, they may need to cut production once again to keep uh, oil prices fr from falling. And so we expect them to potentially do that um, when we have a resolution in the U.S.-China trade war combined with the OPEC production cut. Uh, next year, the, the oil inventories will probably decline a little bit globally, and that will be a positive boosting oil prices, or at least keeping them stable, which is really the key. Stable oil prices is what OPEC wants and, and what U.S. producers want as well. And um, we've got around 30 seconds here, Rob, so I'm going to put you on the spot. Saudi Aramco, do we get an IPO this year? Well, in 30 seconds, I, you know, Saudi Aramco, obviously, there's, there are ways to, for, for, the, for, for it to be an, uh, to IPO and, and, and will likely IPO somewhere in some exchange. We've got a lot of exchanges around the world these days. Um, you know, for, for us at Tortoise, you know, we consider uh, environmental, social and governance issues and take them very seriously. There are some, so, some social and some governance issues associated with Saudi Aramco. I think a lot of investors will have, will have concerns around that. And so as a result of that, um, you know, obviously, we don't think that obviously you're going to have a New York. New York Stock Exchange listing, um, but for us at Tortoise, we we watch it. It's the cheapest, you know, one of the best, uh, and has some of the best assets, oil assets in in the world. But it also has some some social and governance issues that uh, are very high on our on our priority list, and probably keeps us on the sidelines as a result of that. Rob, fantastic to have you with us as always. Rob Summel of uh, Tortoise. There, look forward to uh, chatting to you again soon. Right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we're following around the world. The impeachment inquiry into U.S. President Donald Trump could go public very soon after the U.S. House passed a resolution detailing how the investigation will now proceed. The vote was largely along party lines, with two Democrats joining Republicans in opposition. The White House condemned the resolution as unconstitutional. Senior Washington correspondent Joe Johns joins us now. Joe, fantastic to have you with us. You know, I look at polling here, the country's split down the middle on, on this impeachment vote. Obviously, the parties, the Democrats, the Republicans are split down the middle. What difference will make making these hearings public make, do we think, to that view? Well, the Democrats have always said that they would like to see a majority of Americans in favor of moving forward with the impeachment inquiry, the articles and impeachment itself. And they don't have that right now. In fact, if you look at the recent ABC News poll, it shows Americans split right down the middle with the yeas and the nays at 49 to 47 percent. So uh, that's really close. And uh, Democrats would like to have hearings in order to uh, get the American public on their side. Uh, it's certainly a big question uh, because right now a lot of all of what has gone on recently has been behind closed doors. So uh, that and the fact that this inquiry could take a lot longer than people expect uh, could go well down into December before they even get articles. Uh, it seems like a potential problem for the Democrats trying to unite the country, Julia. As things stand, though, Joe, and uh, we've got to be quick with this, the Republicans in the Senate are not going to vote for impeachment. So even if the House does, Donald Trump's going nowhere unless he's voted out in 2020. Is that right? Uh, 
that certainly seems to be the case right now. The Republicans appear united against uh, the president, uh, uh, against impeachment. And uh, the fact of the matter is a number of Democrats uh, would have to join uh, Republicans in order to to do anything like removing this president from office. Uh, You're absolutely right at this stage, at least the way we read the tea leaves, if you will, Julia. Yes, and a lot of mud slinging or tea leaves slinging in the meantime. Joe Johns, fantastic to have you with us. The market open is next. Stay with us. More to come. the opening bell this morning. Lots of uh, clapping, smiling people. As expected, we've got a higher open for U.S. stocks after today's better-than-expected U.S. jobs report. Just to reiterate, 128,000 jobs added. That despite the GM strike, we saw strong upward revisions to the prior two months, too. Stocks certainly liking it, as you can see, up more than five-tenths of one percent across the board here. We're beginning a new month on Wall Street, if you remember. Stocks had a really weak start to October. But the month turned out to have more treats than tricks for investors. Yes, we're still going with the Halloween theme. All the major averages are closing higher with the best gains, in fact, coming from the technology sector, as you can see, up some 3.6% for October. It was also a good month for the pound as well. The UK pound posting its biggest gains in around a decade as no-deal Brexit fears eased, at least for some. All right, let me walk you through the global movers here. Fitbit is rallying Google, saying they're going to be buying the fitness tracking company for around $2.1 billion. Fitbit shares rose 41% earlier this week on speculation that Google was in fact interested. And uh, now they're confirming that interest. Fitbit, as you can see, trading above $7.20 a share right now. They got it cheap. Pinterest, wow, down. 22% in early trading. The company reporting a slight profit, but investors were expecting a lot. Revenues, and this is the key, missing forecast. The company also lowering its 2019 outlook. Uh, investors clearly very disappointed. They're falling further below its IPO price. Exxon Mobile higher by 1.6%. Profits fell by almost 50% on weak oil prices. That said, results for the world's largest publicly traded oil company came in well above forecasts. Sales beat two. All right, shares of Avis budget car rental tumbling. The company's earnings fell 11%. The low estimates revenues also missed. They also lowered their full-year guidance. Car rental services have been hit hard by the rise in ride-sharing apps like Uber and Lift. So that's a look at your global movers. All right. Let's bring it back to Brexit. The Brexit party leader's message to the British Prime Minister earlier today. Listen in. I'm going to say this to Boris Johnson. Drop the deal. Drop the deal because it's not Brexit. Drop the deal because as these weeks go by and people discover what it is that you've signed up to, they will not like it. 
That was Nigel Farage kicking off the Brexit party campaign ahead of December's election. As you heard there, Nigel Farage saying we will contest every seat. Boris Johnson should drop his deal. So John Curtis is senior research fellow at independent social research company Natsen. He's also a politics professor at Strathclyde University. Great to have you with us, Sir John. Fantastic to have you with us on the show. We'll come back to the Brexit party and the impact that they could perhaps have, but I just want to get your gauge at this moment. If the election was held today, what should we expect, according to the polls? Well, if the election were today, we should expect Boris Johnson to win with perhaps a majority of around 50 or so. He's currently enjoying a 13-point lead over Labour in the polls because the Labour Party's only running at about 24%. He'd lose some seats to both Liberal Democrats, who are resurgent, and in Scotland to the SNP. But at the moment, the gains he might expect to pick up from Labour around 50 or so would be more than enough to compensate for those likely losses. So it's not entirely straightforward for him. But if the polls are at all right at the moment, then he ought to be heading for being in a position to be able to get Brexit done, basically. Yes. You know, what's quite fascinating to me, and uh, Boris Johnson shouldn't um, rest on his laurels here, is one, how many people changed their minds in terms of how they vote between 2015 and 2017, but also Theresa May seemed to have an advantage in 2017, and then that all disappeared and she actually lost seats in the election of 2017. Why all the volatility? Well, you're quite right. The election is potentially volatile. Actually, almost a half of voters voted differently in 2017 from 2015, uh, not least indeed because of the collapse of UKIP in 2017, Nigel Farage's previous uh, party. And during the 2017 campaign itself, you're right, we started off with a 16-point Conservative lead. We ended up with a two-and-a-half-point one. Now, in fact, this volatility is there, but perhaps also is explained by the fact that voters are actually very stable when it comes to the issue of Brexit itself. Around 86% or so of people in the polls say they would vote Remain again, and around 86% of Leave voters say they'd vote Leave again. But of course, when it comes to how they're going to vote in an election, on both sides of the argument, they have a choice. They have a choice on the Remain side between Labour and the Democrats, and one of the reasons why the polls look very different now from, for the Democrats than was the case back in tw uh, 2017, is they've taken a lot of votes of Remain voters away from the Labour Party. Equally on the other side, with Nigel Farage today making an offer to uh, Boris Johnson that Boris Johnson can't possibly accept, we now have to presume the Brexit Party will indeed fight this election on a broad spectrum and leave voters have a choice. Do they back Boris Johnson's deal or do they back uh, Nigel Farage's clean break? And we saw in the European Parliament election back in May that even though there isn't much movement of voters across the Remain-Leave divide, because they've got the choice as to how to operate within that divide, then there's plenty of volatility. And in particularly within recent weeks and months, what we have seen is the Conservative Party gaining ground amongst Leave voters, essentially at the, at the expense of the Brexit Party. And the question now will be, now that Nigel Farage is indicating he's entering the fray uh, in a serious way, as whether or not he can erode the gains that the Conservatives have made, which will put us back potentially towards hung Parliament territory, or whether Boris Johnson is able to squeeze the Brexit Party vote further and therefore really does end up with a comfortable victory. And that, in a sense, is one of the absolutely crucial battles now in this election.
Yeah, to your point, and that was going to be my next question, did the probability of a hung parliament just rise as a result of, of Nigel Farage's offer this morning? And, and to yep. your point, you're saying yes. It rose, but it's still not there because essentially the polls that have been conducted so far have been conducted on the basis that the Brexit Party were going to fight every seat. I think the truth is probably the converse is more important. If the Brexit Party had announced this morning that they weren't going to fight very many seats, then that would have been good news for Boris Johnson and his lead and the polls would probably have expanded. He's just not going to get that possible bonus and he's left still, therefore, fighting for the support of Leave voters uh, with Nigel Farage. Now, maybe Mr Johnson can win that. I mean, there are, there are contradictory pointers. On the one hand, very few Leave voters seem to blame the Prime Minister for the failure to deliver Brexit by yesterday's deadline. But on the other hand, there's still a substantial body of Leave voters, maybe a plurality even, who still think that leaving without a deal is better than Boris Johnson's deal. And of course, you heard how Nigel Farage is majoring on that issue. So it depends on how Leave voters decide to pan out. So far, Mr Johnson's been winning, but there's another six weeks to go. I mean, could Nigel Farage be blamed here for splitting the Leave vote in whatever form it looks like here and preventing once again Brexit happening? Because that's arguably yep. the fallout here and the risk. Well, that's the risk that certainly many of us think he's taking. Of course, Mr Farage is arguing, uh, uh, no, I think I take more votes off Labour than I do off the Conservatives. However, the polling evidence is that basically for every vote he's taking off Labour, and he is taking some, about 7% of the Labour vote, he's taking two off the Conservatives. And therefore, probably the net effect of him standing is disadvantageous to the Conservatives, even if we can't necessarily assume that all those voters who switched from Labour to the Brexit Party would necessarily vote for Labour in the absence of the Brexit Party's standing. But of course, you know, uh, Boris Johnson's ability to win this election in the first place, it also rests on, an, on a split on the other side of the Brexit divide. The fact that the Liberal Democrats are now sharing out the Remain vote with the Labour Party is what explains why Labour are so far behind and why the Conservatives can think about winning a comfortable majority, even though they're standing in their polls at around 36, 37% is not particularly strong. It's the split in the Remain vote that is the other crucial foundation of Boris Johnson's election chances. He has to hope that it's sustained and that Jeremy Corbyn isn't successful in squeezing back some of that Liberal Democrat vote. All we can say on that is that whereas Mr Johnson has demonstrated some success at squeezing the Brexit Party vote, so far Jeremy Corbyn has shown no ability at all at squeezing back the Liberal Democrat vote amongst Remainers. Oh, my goodness. Is a probability of another election after December's election higher than Brexit happening here? And I'm asking well, in a naughty you... manner. <laughs> yeah. Well, well no, 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 I, th I think that's slightly the wrong question. The truth is, either Boris Johnson is going to win this election and the UK is going to leave the European Union along the lines he proposes, or we're going to go to hung Parliament. And in a hung parliament, I think what you should anticipate to happen is that even if Labour have fewer seats than the Conservatives, the SNP and the Liberal Democrats will want to support, or at least keep in office, a minority Labour administration on the condition that that administration then goes for a second EU referendum. That yes. will mean another extension. It will mean another vote. But at the end of that, one way or another, the UK will have finally made a decision about Brexit. Watch this space. Sir John Curtis, fantastic to have you on the show, sir. Thank you so much for that.
All right, after the break, keeping batteries cool, we're in the chat room with Kula, a tech firm developing technology to reduce the fire risk in your phones, laptops, and electric vehicles, and more. That's next. Welcome back to the show. Batteries are a multi-billion dollar industry, but the lithium-ion battery, so useful in our laptops and phones, in electric vehicles and space technology, essential in fact, comes with a warning too. There's a danger that they could overheat, and we've seen cases where they burst into flames. Enter Cooler Technology. They've developed a wrap for these batteries, which combats that risk. In the chat room, Michael Moe, the CEO, who's going to see his protective devices fly all the way into space. This is the core material. It's a, it's a vertically aligned carbon fiber. Uh, we make it here in, uh, in the U.S. We make it down in San Diego. Right. Uh, that's where our company is based out of. Um, and this is the core material. And then we make uh, uh, these uh, thermal runaway shield products uh, that, that, you know, that we call it. And uh, put into, uh, uh, we work with the largest uh, uh, car companies in the world uh, for the next generation, uh, you know, the EV vehicles. Can I touch it? Yes, please, yeah. Ooh, it feels like, um, it feels like a fur coat. It's like a velvet. <laughs> velvet. It's a velvet, yes. Yeah. It's a velvet, yes. The heat is contained. Um, it's a carbon fiber material. Uh, we have some enclosures around that with some liquid. So when the, when the um, uh, battery catch fire, um, then the, uh, the liquids start evaporating. So right. it's a phase change. Uh, so, it's, so that takes away all the energy of a single burning cell. Says when you think of the sheer numbers of lithium-ion batteries in use today, the scalability of his business is huge, and he's taking steps to ensure he stays ahead of his rivals, like collaborating with NASA, for instance. Listen in. Every time you sit down, you have your laptop, tablet, and phone at the same time, and something else. Um, so that translates to about 2.3 billion lithium-ion battery devices wow. on passenger planes alone just in the U.S. Every day. Every, yeah, every year. That does not include cargo, uh, Amazon, the biggest e-commerce companies in the world shipping their batteries. All the battery has to go back. Your iPhone gets, re, you know, gets uh, sent back and so forth. So the market is enormous. Um, uh, the world produces something like 7 billion lithium-ion batteries every year. 7 billion. So that's the population of, of the entire planet. And that's growing at a pretty, pretty high, high rate as well. So what about competition here? Um, everybody is chasing after the holy grail, which is the battery safety. Yes. Um, we believe that we have the most efficient material just because um, what we build here is going to be launched on the International Space Station on, uh, on Saturday. So we're part of the NG12 program uh, on it. Uh, we provide a containment solution to keep laptop batteries safe on the International Space Station. So uh, obviously that's the most expensive real estate in, yes. the, uh, in the world, <laughs> in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the space. So they want to keep that uh, containment as compact as possible. Um, and in case if a battery were to go to thermal runaway, have fire, nothing comes out of the bag because the last thing you can afford on the international space station is fire the cat you know cattle so definitely want to contain that contain the fire contain the smoke contain the uh, the explosion so we're working with nasa and a company called lidos which is our good partner of ours uh, we uh, since the beginning of this year and then now the the solution is totally qualified 
is part of the program, uh, the mission to be on the International Space Station, to be launched on this Saturday, actually. It's incredibly light. It also costs right now less than 10% of the lithium battery, which is clearly a huge expense in the technology that we're talking about here. He says the job now is to bring that cost down further. The company itself, Cooler, not yet profitable. They're investing a lot of money, clearly, in the technology. They went public by direct listing last year, and he's upbeat about investor potential here and positive about combating things like piracy and protecting crucial intellectual property rights. Listen in. We believe that the big growth phase for us is ahead of us. So now we're on the public platform. Uh, average investor can participate. So hopefully we can, uh, everybody can enjoy the growth with us. Final question, and it goes to the US-China trade deal situation and the difficulties of agreeing patent protections, technology protections for intellectual property like your own. Yes. How important is it as an entrepreneur that's developing something so unique to have those protections? Yeah, I think protection is important, you know, in every part of the world, yes. right? So, to just we've been very focused on the U.S. market. Uh, uh, year, uh, you know, so far, uh, our I think 100% of customer base has been U.S. Yes. European customers, um, because you know uh, the scale and the cost point is is at that point right mm. now. Um, but I think that you go into these emerging markets. Uh, patent protection is very, very important. It's also very important to work with the right partner for that local market because yes. I think every local market, the pricing is different, the economics is different, the distribution is different, and the user behavior is different. There's a huge electric vehicle opportunity in China. Yes. Are you talking to Chinese companies too? Uh, yes, we're working with partners to for that distribution. I believe that you have to find the right partner for that. Yes. Uh, going there alone is very challenging. It's a huge market, uh, and the design time is long, right? Um, mm. So you got to work with the right right partner. Uh, we're in discussion with the right partner to get into the right business model to support them. Do you feel safe taking your technology to China? Uh, I think it's just like just like every, every just like everything else, you know. Um, build the right protection, work with the right people, make the economics work, right? right? The, the key is to make the economics work. Uh, I think, you know, even back in the day when you have uh, uh, music sharing and so forth, mm -hmm. and then so Apple's of the world, Spotify of the world, made it uh, more expensive to steal the music than just to buy a subscription. So if you can create a business model, this is what I believe in, you have to create a business model where it's gonna be m more costly for people to steal from you than to partner with you. It, and that would become a much longer sustainable business model over time because uh, everything's become a service model now. Everything is IP, service, recurring revenue. Even as a hardware company, we create the IP, but it's very important to develop an ecosystem so that you can license to somebody, you can partner with somebody to lower the cost for the entire market, increase the demand, and then build economics around your system. Do you have that model yet? Uh, we have been communicating to our shareholders that that's the direction that we're going. Yeah, it's smart. Yes, it's just you. how you make it happen. Yes, yeah, so we hope that we will be announcing something soon into that market. Uh, it's a lot of things in the works right now, but uh, <laughs> we, we, we hope we can announce something publicly in the near future so that we can come back and talk to us when you do. Okay, thank you so much. <laughs> Appreciate it. Make, make it more profitable to work together than technology theft. It's a smart idea, it's how it works in practice. All right.
Still to come on First Move, the Rugby World Cup is entering the final phase. We'll head live to Japan where excitement is well and truly hitting fever pitch. Go England! We're back in two. Welcome back to First Move with a look at today's boardroom brief. Alibaba stock 1% higher after the Chinese e-commerce giant beat estimates with a 40% increase in quarterly revenues. E-commerce and cloud computing growth also helping boost the numbers here. Now we're a day away from the Rugby World Cup final between England yay, and South Africa in Yokohama, Japan, while New Zealand have just beaten Wales in their third place match. CNN's Christina McFarlane has been in Japan for the knockout stages and joins us now from Tokyo. So excited about this match tomorrow, can barely talk about it, Christina. Talk me through what we've seen and does the rugby fever that we've seen in Japan carry on, do you think, after this, um, this finishes? Well, we certainly hope so, Julia. What a performance we've seen from the home side here. And there was a real feeling. I was speaking to the CEO, Brett Gosper, uh, of World Rugby today, that they want to capitalise on this moment. So I think this is not the end for Japanese rugby. But for this final tomorrow, goodness me, we have pound for pound two of the biggest and most powerful teams in World Rugby about to lock horns here in Tokyo. And there's definitely a buzz in the air tonight in the city. Uh, we know that we have two honoured guests flying in, especially for the occasion tomorrow. Royalty, no less. His Royal Highness, the Duke of Sussex, uh, Prince Harry, will be coming into Tokyo tomorrow morning. He is, of course, uh, the patron of the governing body, the RFU. And he was actually in the, in the stadium in 2007, 12 years ago, when these two teams last faced off. So he'll want to see a different result here tomorrow. And for South Africa, we know that Cyril Ramaphosa arrived early this morning. He's been WhatsApping and FaceTiming with the players all week. Uh, and uh, But, you know, the real general feeling is that England are the strong favourites. We saw how they dismantled Yay. New Zealand in that semi-final they were absolutely fearless and Eddie Jones the captain says that this team have been building up to this moment for four years but I tell you South Africa are not going to be a pushover no but you and I Christina are completely biased we think England can do it enjoy <laughs> Christina McFarlane there in Tokyo thank you for joining us all right before we leave you we wrap up the show let me give you a look at what we're seeing stocks rallying after today's strong jobs report we've got the S&P and the Nasdaq hitting record territory that's it for the show you've been watching first move time to go make yours have a great weekend quality sleep is essential and that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs so you can choose what's right for you whenever you like Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.